Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezekiel. Good, I'm glad you chose that because that's where my message is from. Um, otherwise, it was going to get very complicated and difficult. So, um, thank you for doing that. I want to talk to you this morning about a new heart. and uh, <clears throat> But it's actually a new heart to serve and obey. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more um, as we move through here. There's going to be some uh, things that are said today that um, have more of a current flavor to them. So um, hopefully they'll be helpful and meaningful to you. Now remember um, just kind of review here for just a second. Ezekiel was taken captive, and as he writes this, he's not in Jerusalem, he's not in Judah, he's in Babylon. And he talks about, actually says where he is, you know, he, he talks about being by the, by the, the Shebar Canal, where he's actually with other exiles people who have been taken captive by the conquering Babylonians. Uh, a, a, new, a new king has been, in, has been put in place. Um, and they, they really don't have any, um, uh, any recourse. Let me, let me just kind of to put this in perspective. Let me read to you a passage from chapter 17, and it kind of talks about all the, kind of puts things into perspective historically. Um, then the word of the Lord, verse 11 of chapter 17, then the word of the Lord came to me, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord, surely in the place where that king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. The Babylonians came. They without a lot of warfare, there were some, conquered Jerusalem, took the king, replaced him with another, and made him vow that he would be loyal, and he broke the vow. He wasn't going to be loyal to Babylon. He went to actually went to Egypt, and as we read Jeremiah, we read how Jeremiah told them not to do that. So um, that's what's gone on. Now these captives are in Babylon, and there is war going on in Judah. 
The Babylonians, because of that rebellion, have gone back and they are fighting against Judah, which, and there's a siege and all ter- all sorts of terrible things. Things that Jeremiah talked about are going on in, the, in that city because of their rebellion. So that, that kind of puts everything in, into kind of uh, maybe a little historical perspective and, and gives you, uh, uh, you know, a picture. You say, well, this, this thing that's happening over there between Russia and the Ukraine and other nations helping the Ukraine and maybe other nations helping Russia, that's all new. Nothing like that's ever happened before. Duh. Okay? There's nothing new under the sun. Go with me to chapter 8. And we're just going to jump into this. So the, the, the message here is that Judah, though it lasted longer than the nation of Israel, Judah is also falling under judgment because of its many sins. And that was what Jeremiah's message was. And they, and they actually prophesied, Jeremiah actually prophesied until he got to a place where he said, it's too late. You either surrender and live or fight and die. But it's, it, you're, you, you, you can't repent anymore. Judgment, it was going to come. And now it, it, uh, Ezekiel is trying to deal with the people who he's with who are in captive and he's also, he's also apparently communicating with what's going on to some degree back in Jerusalem. Um, there were prophets in among the exiles, and we know that Jeremiah talked about this. Jeremiah, remember, was the one who said 70 years, that you're going to be in captive 70 years. Later, when we read Daniel, we see that come up again. And so there were prophets among those exiles who said, this is going to be over in a little bit. Babylon's going to, we're going to be released and we're going to go back. And Jeremiah said, no, that's not the case. Build, build your houses, plant your, plant your fields, and, and improve the welfare of your community because you're going to be there for a couple generations. Chapter 8, we see Ezekiel being shown things, and, and I want to talk to you about God sees the secret things. Chapter 8, I'm just going to read some excerpts here. Hopefully you've read this. I beg of you, please read these. Please, please read these scriptures. I can talk to you about it. I hope I bring things to your attention that you don't see. I pray that that's what the Lord does, that, that, that my sharing expands what you know about these things. My sharing is not as important as you reading it. Chapter 8, verse 6. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But then he says, you will see still greater um, abominations. And we're going to read on because there's more, more to all this. I'm not going to read all of it, but we'll read on. He says, verse 8, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Um, I'm not going to read all that. But he goes in, and, and, and the room is full of, of idolatrous things, and there are people in there offering incense and smoke to it. They're worshiping it before all of this idolatry. And I'm going to skip on down, just for sake of time. He brought me to the entrance of the north gate to, uh, of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. 
Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see greater abominations of these. Then he took me to the inner house, the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, the entrance of the temple between the porch and the altar, about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Verse 17, Then he said to me, O son of man, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? That they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. And uh, there's other things that are said. I'm just, I think we've got an idea. Folks, God sees the secret stuff. And it, had, it, had it taken time to read all of this, God's showing Ezekiel. Ezekiel's not even where all this stuff has taken place. God shows Ezekiel what's happening, even to the point where he says, you know, dig in the wall and go in that secret room, and in that secret room you see all of these abominations, and they're in there offering incense to it. We know this, but we conveniently forget that God knows everything, that there are no secrets God knows the thought and intent of our heart. Every man's heart, his thoughts, his fears, his plans, though though never spoken, God knows them all. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this. It's not just an Old Testament principle because the New Testament tells us that deeds that were done in darkness will be brought to light. And so we, we see this principle throughout all the scripture that, that um, God's omniscient, he knows it all. He's on the present. He's every place. There's no place we can go and hide. So we can build ourselves a secret room. Those, uh, those worshipers can go in that secret room where they think no one sees. <laughs> it's amazing to me that even after the resurrection, Jesus appeared in a room where the windows and doors were locked. And if you read that passage carefully, he scared the living daylights out of those people who were in there. I mean, just kind of imagine all of a sudden, you know, he he shows up. And I just love the King James Version is so wonderful in its understatement. It says, uh, peace, be still, you know. Uh, When when we did... uh, uh, I used to go to these law enforcement training things called Act Out. And they, they had people portraying perpetrators and policemen. And every once in a while, there would always be some scenario where someone would be distraught and the policeman would always say, calm down, calm down. How many know those are two of the most useless words in English language? Calm down. Um, I mean, it's, the intent is right, Correct. But it, it just doesn't, it's not effective. I thought about this this past week when I was lying on the table and that lady was taking my arm and bending at places it didn't want to go. And I was laying there for a while and then all of a sudden my feet started going like this and she says, relax. <laughs> and when it got done, I said, and I actually told her this story. I said, you know, three of the most useless words in the language are one, relax, and two, calm down. And she laughed, and that was funny. We, um, it's not just an Old Testament principle. It's a New Testament 
principle. We, we, we tend to forget that those deeds done in darkness will be revealed. The hatred that we have, the strife that we create, the selfishness that maybe creates that strife. Are we not all guilty before the Lord and do we not all need a Savior? Chapter 11. I'm going to skip ahead. Let me, I'd like to read all this, but, um, yeah, let me read the first four verses. It says, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men, and I saw among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity, and to give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. The city is a cauldron, and we are meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Very interesting. Now, I'm going to skip on here, skip ahead of a lot of the, the prophecy that he gives. Look at verse 10, though. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel... And you shall know that I am the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about more of the, of the judgment that would come. Did you know, and uh, uh, make reference to, to Hebrews 12 here, and we'll come back to it in a second, that Hebrews, without reading it, I don't want to, go, don't want to take time to go to it and read it, but, but read it as you can and maybe make a note in your Bible, that Hebrews 12 is pretty explicit and and plainly says to us that God's discipline is for our good and that human parents because they love human fathers because they love their children discipline them that discipline is one of the proofs of God's love now there's another side to that we'll maybe talk about it in a minute. But this, So here he's saying, look, I'm going to judge you people. And he says, I'm doing it so that you'll know that I am God. And we talked about this a week or so ago. The most important thing, the beginning of wisdom, the most important thing you can ever know is that he is Lord. I think George made kind of reference to that when he prayed, when he talked about that he is Lord. He's over all things. When we... When we read about the sacrifice of Christ in Philippians 2, it ends with this passage that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. So, he's, he's the, the Lord's saying, look, I'm in charge of all this stuff and, and I'm doing this and one of the things I want you to know is that when this happens, I want you to realize that I'm doing it because I'm God. Now, in verse 13, this is an interesting thing. It came to pass, I'm in chapter 11 still, it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pilatiah, the son of Benaniah, excuse me, the son of Benaiah, died. And I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make full end of the remnant of Israel? 
Now, there's two or three things we're going to say about this, but I want you to see that Ezekiel cries out. Now, he, he probably knew that man. He knew him, he knew him by name. He, he, the Lord gave him the name. But remember, Ezekiel lived his early years in, 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 uh, in Israel. And because he was a priest, he was taken into captivity. Um, it's possible that Daniel was taken in an earlier one, but he was, he was taken, he, he, he wasn't disconnected from the, he didn't grow up in Babylon. He, he knew these people. So while he's saying this, that God's going to bring judgment, this guy dies somehow. I, I, I don't know how, how all that works out, except there he tells it and he cries out to God. And then we get to these verses. Now let me read these verses to you. And the word of the Lord came to me. So, you know, and is a continuation word, isn't it? So he cries out. He says, here's this judgment. And while he's prophesying this judgment, one of the men involved in this dies. And Ezekiel cries out. It's like his heart is broken. He cries out, God, what, what's going to, is everybody going to, is everyone going to be gone? Is there going to be no one left? And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us the land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then he ends, he said, but those who goes who go after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord God. The greatest promise in this book a promise that Jeremiah talked about, a promise that Dan, later Daniel talks about. The greatest promise in this book arose out of Ezekiel's cry out, crying out before God about what's going to happen with all this. Where is this all going to go? And, and the promise is so wonderful because he says, I'm going to, I'm going to regather and I'm going to, give, and I'm going to restore. I'm going to bring them back. And where they are, I'm, I'm with them where they are. By the way, he, he says that. And Jeremiah said the same thing. But he said, I'm, I'm with them where they are. So Ezekiel cries out to God and says, God, what, what's going to happen here? Is everyone going to die? Or is there going to be no one left? Are we, are, you know, is it all going to be destroyed? Is it all going to be gone? And God reassures him. And he says to tell it, here's the promise that I'm giving you. And th- this is a temporary thing. And it's going to end. And when it ends, I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to regather you. I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to give you a new spirit. And I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And that's reiterated later in the New Testament. Now, there are 
end times ramifications with all this. And of course, we get later in the book of Ezekiel, there's all kinds of prophecies in there. There are end times ramifications. I can't get into all that, but I do want to share two things with you about this. And one I've already alluded to. God disciplines us for our good and his glory. And again, you can cross-reference Hebrews chapter 12. That's not the only place, but that's the the place where it's articulated perhaps the the plainest, especially for the plain, in the most plain way, especially for those of us who are believers. He disciplines us for our good and for his glory. The two are not mutually exclusive. Secondly, revival comes from God. That's why I wanted you, wanted to point out very specifically that all this discipline and everything, it comes so that they may know that he is the Lord. And by the way, that, there are phrases that are repeated throughout all of this book. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at my Bible. I just I marked a couple pages. I marked a couple of them right that are right in front of me here. Chapter 12, verse 15, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 16 ends, and they shall know that I am the Lord. It's throughout this entire book. So if, if there's two phrases is used over and over again, <laughs> they are, thus saith the Lord, and that they may know that I am the Lord. God is continually trying to re- reveal himself to them and show himself to them. You can read 1 John in the New Testament to get a New Testament perspective on that. So, this is why we, we talked about it earlier. The great, you know, the beginning of wisdom is understanding who God is. And so, uh, let, me, let me just say a couple things to you. There's lots of current talk and thoughts on revival. Uh, there's movies, movie coming out about revival. So are you going to see it? Probably not, just because I don't see movies very much. Um, maybe later when it gets on YouTube, in five or six years, I'll look at it. Um, say, do you know what it's about? Yeah, I know what it's about. I lived it. No man can create the move of God. I encourage you to pray that it will happen. But your praying won't make it happen. It's a it's God's sovereign grace. Even Daniel, as we mentioned earlier, when he read Jeremiah and said 70 years, it's going to be 70 years, and Daniel looked at, the, looked at his calendar and said, well, hey, we're into this time. When's it going to be? And he got on his face and he fasted and prayed to God. Even then, Daniel didn't get a revival. All, all Daniel got was what God was planning to do. God encouraged Daniel by showing him what he was planning to do. He not only showed him what he was going to do in the, in the near future, he showed him what he was going to do in the far future. There's all kinds of books been written, you know. And God does nothing but an answer to prayer. 
God initiates, we respond. The only way that little statement that I said, that I quoted there, that God does nothing nothing but an answer to prayer, the only way that's true is if God prompts you to pray so that you're in line with what God is going to do anyway. You, you cannot make revival. Now, if you want one, try to make one in your own life. Okay, make a vow before you leave here today. God, every day, I'm, I'm going to read my Bible 30 minutes and I'm going to pray 30 minutes. See how long that goes. Let me make it easy. I'm going to read my Bible 10 minutes. I'm going to pray 10 minutes. You can accomplish that in the bathroom and driving. But you won't. Unless God does it. No man can create the move of God. So God initiates, we respond, and our response ought to be to yield. Um, You cannot, let me back up. So let me go back to 11 verse 10. That they shall know that I am the Lord. Lord, creator of all. The one who sees things in secret. The omniscient one. The omnipresent one. The all-powerful one. How can you begin a move of God by denying the essential nature of God himself? All right, I got real quiet in here. Did I I just leave and go past everybody's head here? Say, well, if we don't pray, it won't happen. God will do what God will do whether you pray or not. I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to pray that revival will begin here. Say, well, we need a revival in our country. Certainly God will give us one if we pray. Well, uh, certainly is not a good word. Because it's not accurate. Because you don't know the mind of God. It It may be that we have to be judged before we get to the place where we'll really yield and repent. And by the way, in the New Testament, where does judgment begin? In his house. And we tend to think about that. We, we tend to think about in his house. We tend to think about, well, it's the four walls. You know, that's where discipline happens in the four walls. All. It, he's, he's talking about his people. Begins in his people. So... Um, I don't want to belabor this point. Uh, I, I just... I, 
been doing this since 1978. Watched all sorts of things come down the road. Unfortunately, I've saluted some of them and they shouldn't have been saluted. I didn't salute near as many of them as some of my peers. And I think that's not because I'm holy, it's just because I ask too many questions of everything. So I can't take any credit for that. But I can tell you how deeply grieved I am at everyone who tries to deny the essential nature of God and create things where there are no things. Let me jump into this with both feet. We have people out here saying, I'm a girl when they're not. Or vice versa. How many know what I'm talking about? Church has been doing that for years. Especially the more emotional aspect of the church. Our Pentecostal brethren have been telling us that we can speak things into existence for years. Some of them are still doing it. You can deny essential reality. You can change essential reality by your testimony because there is creative power in your words. And you can, you can go out here and get in your car and if you've got the right radio channel, you can find that before you get home. What's the difference? Essentially, there is no difference. It's men trying to be God. So unless we get to the point where we're going to evaluate all of this only by the word of God, we're going to fail and fall. I mean, you're still there. All right, I may be creating questions. If you've got questions, send them to me. Folks, you know, I watched all this stuff. I, I, I'll, I'll just tell you a story. I remember uh, being around some Christian people, and I, I woke up that day with sniffles, and my head was draining, and I said, I think I'm coming down with a cold, and I got rebuked for confessing a negative thing. You say, that's idiocy. I would agree with you. Oh, if, if the Lord tells you, you know, and you say, well, I feel like I got a cold, but I'm not going to receive that in the name of Jesus. If the Lord tells you that, go ahead. Let me know if it works. If it works, go out and do it over your plants and your tomato plants. See if the curse is broken there. Okay? Pray over them so no worms get them and no weeds grow. Pray the crabgrass out of your yard. All right, I'm going off. I got to come back. Sorry. Am I time up, Andy? It is? Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, all right. Now, here's the third thing. The first thing I wanted to tell you about this is God disciplines us too. Revival comes from God. The third thing, there was an emotional cost to Ezekiel. 
I tried to communicate this before, but when he heard what God was going to do, he broke down. He fell on his face. He was devastated by it. All this judgment and then the blessing, that, that, all, all of that, that relationship with God costs us something, the stress and pain and tears and sorrow and frustration and joy, etc. It's not all joy. Their weeping comes for a night, but what? Joy comes after it. We, don't, we, 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 we tend to only focus on the good times and not, and not on the difficult times. We, we, need to, we need to remember that Jesus in, endured what he went through because he knew that he endured the shame of the cross because he knew it was on the other side of it. We need to remember that Jesus said to him that that woman travails in labor, but later she re- in labor, but later she rejoices because there's a birth that's taken place. There's always a process in this stuff, and I, I challenge you. And it kind of goes along with some of the things before. I challenge you not to get caught up in this thing that says everything is always going to be nice and everything always going to be wonderful. It's not always joy. Please be willing to pay the emotional price. There may be weeping for a night. Don't think for a minute that every person who was taken captive or who worse who died because of the judgment that came on Israel deserved it. All right. Chapters 13 to 14. And I will, I will, uh, <laughs> okay, this is like a third of my sermon here. So I to see if we measure this by inches and lines on the, on the thing here. Chapter 13, 1 through 7. The word Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts. Did you ever hear somebody say that? Just follow your heart. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and who see nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You've not gone up into the breaches or built a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in the day of battle. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. And that's self-deception. They, uh, have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? I'm going to skip down to verse 10. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, those prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and oh, great hailstones will fall, and, and stormy wind break out, and when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? That I, I, I'm abbreviating some of this because I gotta, I gotta keep moving on. Chapter 14. I'll go on to this. It talks about elders. And certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel who takes idols into his heart and sets a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. I will not, that I may lay hold of the heart of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. 
So we've got, we've got prophets who prophesy and leaders who are idolaters. False words. Today, folks, there is a great battle for the truth going on. And as I said earlier, I'll say it again, the final rule has to be the Word of God. It's, it's Scripture alone. Not what we feel in our hearts, not what culture says to us, not what scientists <laughs> say to us. All right? And that's almost a joke anymore. Notice in verse 7, and I mentioned it, they were deceivers, but they were themselves deceived. They didn't know God. They didn't know God, and they didn't know that they didn't know. There is, there is a, a, a religious, I don't, know, I don't know if you could call it spiritual, I don't want to get that deep into the parsing of the words, but there is a religious system out here that tells people they know God when they don't really know God. And, and, and here he says, you know, you, you just, they, they created this thing and you painted whitewash on it. You went to them and said, it's all great, look at that, it's pretty, it's all great, I'm going to cover it up for you. So they, they gave cover and they gave approval of lies and error. And I don't know all the reasons, but I can just imagine that it was easier and more profitable to do that. It was easier to go along with what people said. More profitable also, because then they, you know, they encouraged you. They encouraged you to say more of that. And it was harder to oppose them and say no, which is what the real prophets did. Say, no, that's not the case. The wall's going to fall. No one wants to hear the thing they're doing is not going to work. So, uh, big church out on the West Coast got thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention in the past couple of weeks. Are you aware of that? Church of England is splitting down the middle. Methodist Church across the world is splitting. Church of England is splitting in much the same way. And it's not just the Church of England, it's the church all around the world splitting the same way. And those are, those are big things. But there's a, there's a battle for truth going on today. And in a battle, there are always sides. And in a battle, there are always casualties. So let me, let me give you at least four camps that I can uh, just quickly identify. Number one, there are those who are in error and they're telling their error and pushing their error, etc., etc. Number two, there are those who are undecided and they're trying to figure it all out. Now, this is very, uh, very brief and there's, there's a continuum, I'm sure, in this. But the, unde- the undecided don't know what's right and what's wrong and they're trying to sort it all out. Number three, there are the mediators. The mediators know what's right, and they know that those folks are wrong, but they're trying to woo those folks who are wrong over, and so they're being very nice to them. The word I hear repeatedly is winsome. Be winsome so you can win some. Okay. 
I think whenever I think of the word winsome, I think about the prophet that went and plucked out the guy's beards. <laughs> okay. There you go. I'll tell you that I found out recently when I zipped up my coat, that hurt. And then, there, and then there were the people I'm going to call watchmen. Who point a finger and say, that's wrong. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't think that. Don't say that. Don't agree with that. That's wrong. That guy, and they name him, is wrong. What he's saying is wrong. Now... The mediators are trying to win those who are in error. I think history shows us that those who are in error don't get one. The people who get one are the undecided people. And the only way you win the undecided people is by pointing a strong finger at what's wrong. The watchman knows that if he doesn't say something for those who are blindly going over the cliff, their blood will be on his hands. When you read the first couple chapters of this book and see that. So we must warn those who are still deciding that what they're deciding is wrong and it's going to lead to destruction and devastation. And without even going into all of the details of it, one of the... And I said that, and I, I feel sorry for even saying that. It's wrong because it'll lead to destruction and devastation, but it's wrong because God's Word says so. All right, let me close with this. Let's go back to this. I will give them one heart. I'm in chapter 11, verse 19. I give them one heart. That talks of unity. There's a whole lot that could be said about this. And a new spirit I put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So the implication there is he's going to take that hard, rebellious thing and give them something that's soft and responsive. That they may walk in my statute and keep my rules and obey them. Folks, what's the end result of revival? Why, why does God change our hearts? So we'll walk with Him. So we'll obey Him. So we'll yield to Him. The revival isn't a thing of its, in itself. It isn't the end in itself. The end is that we'll have that relationship with God where we'll walk with Him, that we'll have His heart. It'll be one heart. We'll have a heart with Him. We'll have a heart with all other believers and we'll walk in obedience and we'll be broken before Him and we'll obey His commandments. We'll realize that all those things that are hidden and that are in secret aren't in secret, that he sees them and we'll be before him, we'll be broken and say, Lord, sorry for my heart, sorry for my attitude, sorry for those things I did when I was sure no one was seeing. I'm sorry that you saw them and they were offense to you and we'll be broken before God. That's what a new heart does. 
causes us to walk in his commandments. Causes us to keep his rules. Causes, causes us to obey him. Heavenly Father, give us that new heart. Maybe over the years, those of us who are believers, maybe over the years, our, our, our hearts have become hardened again. They, we've become so casual to you that we've become insensitive. We've, we, we've become so hardened that we have tuned out that still small voice of the Holy Spirit that tries to woo us back to you. Give us that new heart. A heart of flesh that's responsive and tender and sensitive. Lord, I also pray for those of us in this room who have, probably maybe all of us, who have been to one degree or another affected by error, by the materialism of modern Christianity by the susceptibility that modern Christianity has to want to be liked by its culture. Instead of challenging it, we want to be appreciated by it. Give us courage. So after you've put that new heart within us and caused us to be sensitive to you and and, and make us be broken before you, then make us like this prophet, hard as a rock toward this world. so that our heart will be broken before you and not before this world. Because you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.